0: I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. My freshman year in college, I was a wrestler at the University of Oregon. And like most freshmen, I was getting obliterated every single day, just destroyed by the older, better wrestlers. Also, like most freshmen the coaches decided to redshirt me, to give me a year to mature, get stronger, improve my technique. Now redshirts aren't allowed to get any money from the program, and they aren't allowed to compete for the program. So what all the freshman redshirts do is go to division two tournaments and division three tournaments and junior college tournaments, wearing random singlets, red or blue or black or yellow, Any color that isn't Oregon Duck Green. Nothing on your singlet can say Oregon. So the coaches would tell us, hey, there's this tournament within a day's drive. Can you and a few teammates pitch together for gas, find somewhere to sleep, and go wrestle it this weekend? Since they're your coaches, you always say yes. So in December of my freshman year, a couple of my teammates and I were going to wrestle at this tournament in Seattle. There was a freshman who was a heavyweight on our team. And he lived in Tacoma. His parents' house was in Tacoma. So we had a free place to stay 45 minutes from where the wrestling was going to take place. So that heavyweight, a middleweight, and I all drove up in the heavyweight's car. We pitched a little for gas. and We were planning to crash at his parents' house and then go wrestle in the morning. I was always cutting a lot of weight. I was always overweight. And the middleweight was always over too. So we were cutting pretty hard. We had plastic suits on in the car with our uh, sweatsuits on over the top of that. And we'd worked up to get a big sweat right before we got in the car. And We got in with the heavyweight and he drove. Pretty normal drive up. Just driving up in his Honda, in his Civic. The three of us crammed in there. When we get up to Tacoma... We don't go to his parents' house. Instead, he says, we're actually going to go into Seattle tonight because I want to go see this friend. Now, the middleweight and I didn't have anything to do, so we didn't care. So we went with him into Seattle. And his friend's house was actually just this huge, kind of old, dilapidated house filled with people an enormous party on a Friday night. The middleweight and I were like, Wait, are we going to this party? And he's like, yeah, I just want to say hi to my friends. No big deal. We're like, all right. So we go in there, but I'm cutting weight. The middleweight, he's cutting weight. So we don't drink. We don't party. We don't eat anything. We don't even drink water. We can't afford to have anything at all. So we're just sober on the couch at this terrible party. The house is just full of sketchy people. And we're just sitting there cutting weight. Sitting in our sweatsuits and we're spitting into cups. Like, this is great. Meanwhile, our heavyweight teammate, who's going to wrestle tomorrow, who's a college athlete, just gets drunk. And then he gets high. And then he gets crossfaded. And then he drinks some more. We keep trying to get him to leave the party, but he won't leave with us. Finally, we talk him into leaving. Way late. We're not feeling good. It's after midnight. We get out to his car, but his car's not there. We're like, where's your car? And he's like, ah, probably one of my friends borrowed it or something. We're like, what? How do we get back to your parents' house and sleep? He's like, oh, I got another car here. We're like, you keep a car at your friend's house? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's fine. So he walks us over a little ways, and in the driveway over, there's a 924 Porsche. And he's like, let's get in. Or, like, the Porsche is yours? And he's like, well, yeah, it's, it's my other car. So we get in there. But right away I realized, oh, man, he's crossfaded. There's no way he can drive us 45 minutes away. So I'm like, you, you can't drive. And I asked my middleweight teammate. I'm like, you want to drive? And he's like, look, man, it's a stick. I can't drive a stick. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll drive. So my drunk, high, crossfaded teammate, Heavyweight wrestler is in the passenger seat. My middleweight teammate's in the back seat. I'm in the front seat, scooch forward. And when I go to turn the keys in the ignition, there aren't any keys and there isn't any ignition. And the whole bottom of the steering wheel column is torn out. Just wires everywhere. And I'm like, yo, is this car stolen? And he's like, well, yeah, but it got stolen from me. And now I got it back. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, you just do this. And he reaches over underneath the steering column. I put in the clutch, push on the gas, car starts right up. I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, actually, I was lucky to get it back. Everything was torn out, but hey, car's a car, right? So I back out in this restolen 924 Porsche. Start driving. We get on to I-5 going south. It's a ghost town. It's almost 1 o'clock in the morning at this point. My teammate's it's like, just add a little gas. Shift up. See what you think. So, being an unintelligent 18-year-old boy, I just started to go for it with the car. Put it up to 90, then 100, then 110, then 120 dipping in and out, dropping down on curves, gunning it on flats, 130, 135, get it to about 137 miles an hour, almost 140. And then there's this big banking turn on I-5, and I slow down, make the turn, drop it back down to about 80, and we get all the way to Tacoma real quick. When I get there, and we pull into his driveway, my teammate, the heavyweight wrestler, he just starts laughing. He's like, We just stole my friend's car. And I was like, What? And he's like, I mean, he's not really my friend. And I was like, what? And he's like, we just boosted this car. I said, What? He was like, Yeah, we boosted it. I know who we boosted it from though, so it's all good. The guy's a dick. I'm a hugger. I like to hug people. I tend to hug people. Or as my friend Ben Temple says, I'm an over hugger. So I've had to learn to ask people if I can hug them. Like, can I give you a hug? And sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no. And I can respect that because some people don't feel like hugging the way I feel like hugging. For example, if I see you and I haven't seen you in a while, I'm probably going to hug you. If you're in my family, I'm going to hug you. If you're in my friend group, I'm going to hug you. If uh, I think that you're dealing with something and sad, I'm going to hug you. If I'm excited about something we just did, I'm probably going to hug you. So maybe I'm an overhugger. And if you're an overhugger, you get yourself into some awkward situations. So I'll give you three examples. One. I was going to my daughter's fifth grade soccer end of year banquet at Papa's Pizza. So we had the big, the big room, big room reserved for the team. And I'm coming from work and I'm running a little late. So when I come in there, everyone's already in there, right? Lots of kids, lots of parents. And I see my sister in law who's come there to support my daughter, you know, say, good job. Did so well this season. I loved watching you play. I see my sister-in-law. And I'm coming up to the group from behind. She's standing there. You know, she's pretty tall. She's like 5'10". She has dark hair. She always stands a certain way where she crosses her arms and kind of shifts to the left. So I see my sister-in-law, Amy. And I come up to her from behind. And because I'm shorter than her. And because I'm a hugger. And actually, Amy's a hugger, too. I come up from behind and I kind of jokingly rough hug her from behind like I kind of put one arm over her shoulder and kind of mash her head down into me and kind of mess with her as I hug her and right as I mess with her in this kind of like funny jokingly aggressive hug that she and I sometimes give to each other her whole body goes really stiff And I'm like, oh, no, maybe she has a sore back or a sore neck or something like that. So I let go of her. And I'm like, you okay, Ames? And she pops her head up. And it's not Ames. It's not Amos. It's not my sister-in-law. It's a random parent of another girl on the team. And I don't really know this parent very well. In fact, I don't even know her name. So I just was like, oh, my gosh, I'm a... I was sure you were my sister-in-law. I'm so sorry. I I didn't even I that was that was really weird. Thankfully enough, she was like, "No, it's that's cool. It's it's fine." She kind of fixes her hair and stands back up straight, taller than me. I was like very apologetic, ma'am. <clears throat> Walk away, wanting to die. Then When that same daughter was in middle school, it was like seventh grade, end of year, middle school celebration night, right? And there's a crowd of kids, and there's a crowd of parents. And in this crowd, we're going two different directions, and I see this parent that I know pretty well. I've been to her house four or five times. I've talked to her many times at many different events. Her name's Heather. She's walking towards me. And she puts her arms out really big to give me a big, fat hug. And I'm like, oh, Heather. And I give her a huge hug back. And her arms were out, and they were in hugging position. But she doesn't hug me back, even though she was in, like, standard hugging position as she walked straight towards me. And I don't know what's wrong. And so I kind of step back, and she's like, um, I was going to hug my friend who's, who's right behind you. I was... Uh, and I'm like, yeah, of course you were. So you go on and you, you enjoy that. You enjoy that. Oh. Then, third example I got invited to this writers' group. And it was a men's writers' group in Eugene, Oregon. And there are all of these men there who are aspiring writers, they want to be short story writers or poets or novelists. One guy wants to write screenplays. And so I'm talking to this group about writing. And there's this one guy, a little older than me, but really nice. And he asks so many questions. He's got a notebook, and he's writing down everything I say. And he's a really engaging guy. So we ended up talking for almost an hour, mostly just me and him. Right? His name's Toby. seems great. Right? We seem to get along pretty well. At the end of the night, I say goodbye to everybody, goodnight to everybody, and I go home. Well, a few months later, I'm teaching a class at South Eugene High School, and my class gets out, and I'm walking down the hall, and walking towards me is Toby, and I didn't even know he worked for the school district, but he does. And so as we're walking towards each other, he yells my name, and I yell his name, And I go in for a big fat hug. And at the same time, Toby goes in for a handshake. And we kind of meet in the middle. His fingertips for his handshake kind of hit me in the belly as I go to give him a hug. So then I realize we're handshaking instead of hugging. So I go to a handshake as he switches from handshake to hug. So then I'm there with my hand about to poke him in the stomach And he's about to hug me, and I kind of giggle. And then we turn sideways, and I walk with him down the hall, and I side-hug him. I'm living with a traumatic brain injury, which also makes me more awkward. Not just like a little concussion. I've had those. I've gotten punched in the face and gotten a concussion. I've gotten slide tackled from behind in a soccer game and got a concussion. I've been bouldering and my spotter looked away right as I fell and landed on the back of my head and got a concussion. So I've had concussions before, but I've also had a traumatic brain injury. So my brain injury sometimes makes me a little awkward socially, because when you're living with something that's invisible, right? It's not like you can see my injury. It's not like you can see my disability. And sometimes you don't know why I'm the way that I am. I mean, honestly, I don't even always know why I'm the way that I am. But with my brain injury, I injured the front and front right of my brain with direct contact with the car. And then the counter coup motion of my brain injured the back and back left of my brain. So my most injured areas were my frontal lobe, my temporal lobe, and my occipital lobe. The frontal lobe injury affected my ability to plan, so I really have to be intentional about planning. And I learned some skills during cognitive therapy during my rehab. I rehabbed for years. I was on disability. And it worked on things like my ability to plan. So I re- write out detailed checklists Everything has notes. I leave notes everywhere. I write on my hand. I ask people to remind me. And I still sometimes forget things. Because I also have trouble concentrating. In cognitive therapy, my cognitive therapist, who was wonderful, she was always testing for my different levels of ability in different areas. And concentration was one of my weakest areas. On one concentration test, I scored at the second percentile. So I have a really hard time concentrating, which means that I have a hard time linking short-term to long-term memory. But my frontal lobe injury also affected my ability to regulate my emotions. So I could get more frustrated easily, especially at myself, when I wasn't able to do something that I felt like I could normally do, whatever normal is. But I knew what my life was like before the injury, and I get frustrated when I couldn't do what I used to be able to do also was more likely to cry. I still am more likely to cry. I feel my emotions more, which is a blessing and a curse. And then I have a temporal lobe injury. And that really affected my ability to work with short-term memory and make lear- long, uh, links to my long-term memory. So the temporal lobe and the frontal lobe work together. Concentration, memory in the short tar- term, turning that memory into long-term memory. I really have a hard time placing things in time. Yesterday feels the same as three weeks ago. Feels the same as four months ago. I just know something happened, but I have no idea when it happened. And my temporal lobe injury, because the brain is really all connected, it's not separated pieces of the brain, that also affected my emotions. Made me more easily emotional. The occipital lobe injury, though, is different. It really affected how I saw shapes and colors. It affected my perception of vision. I had a time period in the year after my car accident where I kept seeing faces everywhere. In different clothes, shapes, there would be a circle and I'd think it was a face. There'd be a triangle and I'd think it was a face or a trapezoid and I'd think it was a face. I remember one time I was having repeated focal seizures sitting at the rock climbing gym. And I kept seeing faces on the wall in every single shape. And then I'd go into a focal seizure and come out. That temporal lobe injury is why I had focal epilepsy. Focal or timeout seizures where I would space off. I also had some grand mal seizures. But it was more likely for me to be overwhelmed, to have a headache, to have too many moments and stimuli and just to click out for a while. And all of these things affected me together and caused me to be more exhausted because my brain, especially the parts that were working well, were working so hard to make up for the work that I couldn't do for the areas that were struggling, that were damaged. So for example, things like multitasking, which isn't a real thing, your brain actually toggles back and forth quickly between multiple things. I'm not capable of that. It's not really possible for me anymore. So having two different sounds in the background, like if someone's watching a movie on a screen and then someone else in the room has TikTok on, so there are discordant multiple sounds that freaks my brain out. I can't handle it at all and I have to go outside. But I also feel lucky because my written and spoken language functions weren't affected. My whole life would have changed losing that my ability to ever write again, to teach, to interact with family members or friends, all of that would have been gone or changed. To me, that would have been the worst outcome of a brain injury. Maybe other than a brain stem injury, that's the worst. That's what would have changed my life the most. And that language part of the brain is called the Wernicke's area, and I am really thankful that that wasn't crushed or damaged. But the inability to toggle... To do what we think of as multitasking is maybe the most frustrating for me. For example, if I'm with my outdoor program and my co-teacher, Hira, says something to me when a student leader has just asked me a question, right after the question at the same time someone else comes up and says my name, I won't hear two out of those three things. I never get to pick which one I do hear, so I seem oblivious to multiple people at the same time. My brain's trying to toggle, but it can't toggle. So basically I just shut out multiple things and I hyper-focus. I've pretty much accepted now that it's been years and I've done cognitive therapy that I'm never going to be able to toggle again. So I hyperfocus on one thing and to everybody else I seem completely oblivious or rude. So when that big group is all around me, that's when I feel most incapable and I have to try really, really hard to focus, but I always miss multiple social cues anyway. And then sometimes I'm trying so hard to focus that I hear none of anybody. I hear nothing. And so I'm just completely overwhelmed. And overwhelmed is probably the feeling that I feel the most with my brain injury. And I've talked to a lot of other people with dramatic brain injuries, other people who've spent time on disability. And most of them have experienced that feeling of being overwhelmed. Having a brain injury is like having a three-battery pack, and any time you're asked to do a task, you quickly burn through the first battery, so you're into the second. And at the second, you're having a harder time. You're maybe starting to get a headache. You probably need to take a nap. And then if there's too much stimulation in there, you go into the third battery. And then suddenly you're just in survival mode. You can never thrive. I never really understood my brain injury until I did cognitive therapy. Until Tessa Siebert with DHS Organ Disability Services helped me to get to a cognitive therapist who could then work on my recovery, help me understand where I was weak, where I was still strong, What I could do. And because of DHS and disability services, I got my teaching job back. And there are definitely things I can still teach. But I'm still affected. I still struggle. And sometimes, some weeks, I struggle every single day. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful, too. Because my brain injury wasn't the end. And I'm still going. And I'm still creating And I'm still meeting new people and building relationships. And I'm thankful for all of that. Out of respect for the people I love the most, I won't give all the details. So this story will kind of come out of nowhere. But when I was resuscitated in 2018... I came out of a big, black void. It wasn't like I came out of a dream. I didn't come to and remember all the strange things I was thinking. It also wasn't like a normal seizure. Where thinking-wise, it feels like electric schizophrenia. So many snapping pictures. And you come out of a grand mal seizure. Take a big breath. (gasps) Remember all the millions of images just clicking through your brain. It wasn't like that. When I was resuscitated, I came out of a black void. Nothing. Nothing. Nothingness. And it completely shifted my perspective of the world and me, everything. It's hard to take yourself seriously after you have that black void moment. It's hard to think, oh yeah, it really matters what I wear. The clothes I put on my body. It matters what shoes I have on. All that really matters. You know, it's really hard to care about the furniture in your home. After your black void moment, it's hard to think, oh, it matters what color couch we have. Beyond function, it's hard to think it matters what kind of car you have, right? For me, it's, it's even hard to care about what people think of me because I know I'm going to be dead soon, soon enough. A couple days ago, I climbed up into a baby redwood I climbed up into this gorgeous baby coastal redwood on the University of Oregon campus by the music hall. Only 60 feet tall. Climbed up 40 feet above, it split into two trunks. And I sat in that crook there, looked out at the town. It's hard to care about where you live. Hard to care about whether it's an apartment or a house old house or new house. I was sitting in that tree and I thought, I'm going to die, and in 4,000 years, this tree is still going to be here. Unless humans do something to the tree. Unless a group of humans that will also die too soon, or soon enough, or very soon, unless they do something to this tree, this tree will go on for thousands of years. We'll all be gone. And in 20 years, maybe, maybe somebody will read one of my novels or listen to one of these podcast episodes. Maybe in 20 years, one of those things will still be available. They might affect somebody or not. But in 100 years, nobody will say my name. What I do here doesn't matter. And the concept of me wearing certain clothes is silly. Hard to take that seriously. And we humans have so many constructs that matter but don't matter. Living, thinking like a bear lately, it's really hard to imagine two bears conversing on Snapchat. I'm in my bear cave, Snapchatting my friend who's in his bear cave. Or I go on my bear phone and I look up Instagram likes, kind of silly. Also, maybe there are too many bears. If we're bears, maybe there are five billion too many bears. And we're really affecting our environment. It's weird to think of a group of bears starting a fast food chain that eventually becomes so enormous, so globally important, that we... Northern hemisphere bears have to go into the southern hemisphere and we have to clear cut the rainforest so we can put cows down there so that we can create new grazing areas for these millions of cows that we can then kill and then eat all over the rest of the world instead of deer or elk because there's too many of us bears now kind of crazy. Environmentally speaking, it's hard to take myself seriously because why should I live? And does it matter when I die? I don't think so. It's hard to care about that anymore. So I do ask myself the question, what does matter? And I guess the communities I build, the relationships I have, but they'll all die too soon. Maybe the art that we make, maybe some of that will last. Maybe how we treat everything around us. Maybe how we care. Maybe how we build communities in different ways. Maybe. But as just another animal, as just another bear, eventually I'm gonna grow old and I'm gonna have to find some quiet place where I can crawl off and die. Constructs, so many constructs we believe in. I've been thinking about this lately. There are 195 countries in the world right now. We think of this as a real thing because countries are real, right? I can fly from the United States to South Africa And both of those are real places, so the idea of a nation must be real. But to begin to deconstruct this construct, the idea of nations, let's look at how much flow there is to that number, the number of nations at different times in history. You can look online. 195 nations right now, but in the year 1900, only 121 years ago, there were 78 independent self-declared nations on earth. 200 years before that in 1700 there were 31 self-declared nations on earth. But the number doesn't always go down. In the year 1700 years before that there were more nations. There were 35. So the number of nations on earth is always changing. But then again all of those numbers aren't real. Because there are missing people groups at all times in history. People groups that are unknown to cartographers, anthropologists, world leaders, quote-unquote. There are always people groups who don't ascribe to the concept of the nation around or near them. They don't register their nation, as if there's a national registry. For example, I was climbing alone at Gates Pass outside of Tucson, Arizona two years ago when I ran into a Navano, Navajo hunter, he and I sat and talked for a long time on a ridge overlooking a basin. First of all, this man didn't think of himself as a Navajo, even though that's the name of his people group and reservation, according to the United States. This man called himself a Dine. That's what he called his people group. He also didn't believe that he was in the state of Arizona. Furthermore, he didn't think we were in the United States, and since he had a Winchester 3030, I didn't disagree with him. Now, you could say that man was wrong. I could have. And if he killed an antelope right there outside of Tucson and got caught without a hunting license, you could even get a United States game warden to issue issue him a ticket. So that would mean that he's in the United States, right? A ticket would prove that he was there. But what if he wasn't? What if he isn't? Where we were at the time, I called Gates Pass. But who gave that ridge the name of Gates Pass? I don't know. And is that only an idea reinforced by a cartographer employed by one government or another? And what about the concept of a government? I was associated for a few years with a man who was obsessed with the idea that the United States was in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament in what we call the Bible, which is also a construct. I said, the United States in the book of Revelation, huh? And then he gave me some verse that supposedly alluded to the United States, and I said, you know that that book, Revelation, was written in the year 95. It was a fever dream of John. It also could have been written in the year 96. But also... That's a construct. How do we get to decide what year is zero? Supposedly it's the year 2021. But even that's a construct. Because Christ was born four or five years before the year zero. And not every nation on earth agreed with that idea that Christ restarted history. So it probably is or is not The year 2021 could be 2025, 2026, or it could be the year a million. It's all a construct. This man who was obsessed with the idea of the United States being in the book of Revelation didn't know that the book of Revelation was added to the Bible in the year 400 by St. Jerome. Or if he ever knew that, he didn't acknowledge it when I asked him. He was also obsessed with abortion, with the Second Amendment, gun rights. He was concerned about what he called transgender people in the wrong bathroom. The only problem was I've read every single word of the New Testament, and it doesn't talk about abortion or gun rights or even weapons rights certainly doesn't say anything negative about transgender people or bathrooms. There's no bathrooms in the New Testament at all. I've read every single word as a literature major. But this man hadn't. But I digress. He was obsessed with securing the border. With securing the United States border. Never mind that This man lives in Idaho and hasn't spent any significant time in southern Texas or southern New Mexico or southern Arizona. He doesn't know what that border looks like. I do, but he doesn't. He was obsessed with the idea of securing the border so that those people don't come in illegally. He believed in the concept of legal and illegal people also just maybe a construct. Also didn't know that all of that, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, a lot of California, that also all used to be Mexico. So the idea that it being the United States is also a construct. But before that, before it was Mexico, there were many, many people groups, the largest of which were the Aztecs, all of that was Aztec country. And I don't know how they felt about nations and borders. To the south, the Mayans. The Mayans who disappeared and maybe migrated by boat to Florida. Disappeared, but different, didn't disappear. The Anasazi were there in that southern United States area. They disappeared. Nobody knows where. I wonder how they felt about borders. I wonder how the Anasazi felt about the United States that didn't exist. I wonder a lot of things. So many constructs. I wonder, as a bear, what we bears can do to make the border more clear in southern New Mexico and Arizona. There's no river there on the border. There's no mountain range that naturally divides we need to make it clear somehow so maybe a group of us bears could go down there and we could pee on all the trees so when the bears from the south come up they could say yep that's united states urine on these trees and when we go and we get to the next trees we could before we pee recognize that that's mexican urine on those trees But as I'm thinking about it, there's a problem. There's no trees down there. Um, So maybe we could go in that middle-of-nowhere wasteland and find some creosote bushes, and we could pee our United States bear urine onto the creosote, and those Mexican bears could come up, and they could pee their Mexican urine, which smells totally different from U.S. bear urine, completely different bear urine, on the creosote bushes and then as we're going across the absolute nothing to distinguish it wasteland there we could come up on that very very clear Mexican bear urine and we could stop and say this this is mine and that that's yours sounds funny to say, but after all of that, I'm so grateful for my life. I'm so grateful for the rivers, for the rocks I get to climb, for the places I get to camp. So grateful to sleep under the stars. So grateful for my daughters, Rain and Rue. For Jenny. For our dogs. For Bob Dylan, the boy dog, and Hank Williams Jr., and Little Dragon Goose. I'm so grateful for the outdoor program that I run with my co-teacher, Hira Shamsuddin. I'm so grateful for the student leaders, Acacia and Witt and Sahara, and Casey and Haley and Jesse and so many good people in my life. I'm so grateful. And I'm thankful for the team that helped bring me back from my brain injury, especially for these three people. Tessa Siebert Juliet Machado and my neurologist, Dr. Choi So to everyone in my life right now I want to dedicate this podcast episode and to all the people listening, thank you so much for taking some time to listen to the Boring is the swear Word podcast And my